0: Come now, Holy Spirit, we pray and overrule and overwhelm, overrule and overwhelm my mouth and my words, so that what is said is of and from and by you. Come and overrule and overwhelm our ears and our hearing, so that what is heard is of and from and by you. Come and use this word, God's word, to change our lives, to glorify Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, so far as we've moved through the first Peter's first letter, we've seen a couple of themes emerge. One of those being uh, that believers in Jesus Christ are sojourners and exiles; they're they're temporary citizens in the world in which they live. Because of Jesus and because of obedience to Jesus, sojourners and exiles do not share in the beliefs, the, the values, the morals, and the customs of the world around them. Now here's what we know from history, and this is what Peter knew and what Peter wrote, is that when sojourners and exiles live as sojourners and exiles, they can expect that the world Will lash out against them. Insults, marginalization, economic limitations, even physical suffering or death will come upon a sojourner and an exile. Now, it shouldn't happen, right? It shouldn't happen. No uh, good deed should be rewarded. Uh, with suffering. Peter even says this with his rhetorical question of verse 13 this morning. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But we know that no good deed goes unpunished. We know this. And sometimes when Jesus' people live in obedience to him, suffering results. And nobody likes suffering. Nobody likes pain, whether we're talking about physical pain or emotional or psychological or economic. Nobody likes suffering. And any thought of suffering, any thought of pain, can and does cause us fear. We can and do become paralyzed by fear, not wanting uh, to do something because that it may end in our hurt. We may suffer. But that's a natural consequence of Sojourners and exiles living as the light of the world. That light reveals the darkness of the darkness, and like the empire, the darkness will always strike back. Man. This is what Jesus talks about when he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Persecuted for living in obedience to Jesus as sojourners and exiles persecuted for doing good in God's eyes, doing that which is right, defined by God. Now, what are believers to do when this happens? Believers are called to live in obedience to Jesus. Living in obedience to Jesus may cause suffering. What do believers do? Well, our passage for this morning from 1 Peter chapter 3, I think, points out that the sojourners and exiles are to have no fear, and they are to respond well to suffering. Verse fourteen. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Is, is anybody else in here kind of thrown off by that that statement? Even if you should suffer, you will be blessed. How is suffering a blessing? That doesn't make much natural sense. And most of us spend most of our times, uh, most of our lives, trying to alleviate suffering. You have a toothache; you go see a dentist, like Dr. Doug. Hi, Dr. Doug. He's my dentist. You have a backache, you go see a doctor. Something uh, with your eyesight, you, you try to alleviate suffering because it's not good. It's not a blessing that we would say. But let's think about this because Jesus says, as we read this morning in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus said it. It's in God's Word. Peter repeats it by saying, when you suffer, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And so where is it in our misunderstanding? If a believer lives in obedience to Jesus and suffers persecution for it, then that believer is blessed and should have no fear before those who persecute them. This type of persecution is indeed a blessing because as Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. Think about that just for a second. The blessing is not in the temporal, in the here and now, but in the future. And I know that in our age of instant gratification, it is difficult for us to focus on something beyond the present to get past the tyranny of the now. But Jesus says the, king, the reward is great in heaven. Remember what Peter said in chapter 1 of his letter. That reward, that inheritance, is kept in heaven by God. By God who did the work on our behalf through Jesus Christ. God is the one who keeps the reward for those who endure, for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And that reward is imperishable. It is undefiled. And it will not corrupt or decay. And so there is a blessing because of the result or the reward that comes through the blessing. Suffering because of Jesus is a blessing because of the reward on the one hand, but it's also a blessing because on the other hand, it's actually evidence of being and doing that which God calls us to be and do. If a person proclaims they believe in Jesus, but then live like the world around them, they will not suffer. But if a person proclaims Jesus to be the Lord and Savior and then lives like it, Well, then, there will come a time when, in some way, that person will suffer because of it. It's a blessing because it's actually evidence that we're doing that which God calls us to do. And I'm not talking, again, about suffering that comes as a consequence of us doing something stupid. I'm talking about suffering that comes because we are living for God, for righteousness' sake. Suffering because of Jesus is a blessing because of the reward kept in heaven, because of the evidence given that one is sort of in the spot where God wants them to be. But it's also a blessing because that suffering is used by God to purify and strengthen faith. You think about it, in the midst of suffering, a believer always has an option. In the midst of suffering, a believer can either lean into God in order to endure or can cut and run in order to alleviate the suffering. If you have a toothache, pull the tooth, the toothache goes away, right? Well, if I have a problem and a suffering that's caused by my obedience to God, then if I stop obeying God, then logically thinking, the the suffering will stop. But leaning into God, in order to endure the suffering, is a blessing, is what God wants us to do as the believer comes to know God all the more, as the believer comes to believe in Jesus all the more, as the believer grows in their faith. Peter goes on to say to those who suffer, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, he, he goes on to say always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. In the face of suffering, a believer in Jesus, a sojourner in exile, counts it all as blessing, focuses on Jesus, and has no fear of those who persecute and responds well. In order to stand firm in our faith in Jesus Christ, even in the face of persecution for following him, we must honor Jesus as holy. We must deliberately depend upon Christ, making him the most important part of our very being. Rather than give in to fear, we must follow Jesus to the, as Lord. In a very real sense, we must fear Jesus more than we fear anything else. Oswald Chambers really puts it well when he writes, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Fearing Jesus first puts everything else in its proper perspective. Earlier in his letter, Peter said, honor everyone, but fear God. So here, Peter says, fear only Jesus. And folks, Jesus alone is worthy to be honored as holy. Jesus alone is worthy to be feared. And Peter tells us exactly why Jesus alone is to be feared. If you look at verses 18 through, through 22 of chapter 3, Christ alone is worthy to be set apart essentially because of the gospel. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the, righteousness for the righteous for the unrighteous, That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Talk about a run-on sentence. (laughs) I have had the great pleasure of having uh, Claudia Hesse proofread some of my written material. I'm pretty sure that Peter may have had, you know, a better privilege. You had a few words to say for him. And then in verse 22, Peter says this about Jesus. He has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let me say this right up front. The reason why a believer can have no fear is because Jesus is the conqueror. And before we get bound down in some of what Peter says here in 18, 19, 20, Let us recognize the main point. The reason why a believer in Jesus can have no fear and respond well in the face of persecution is because of Jesus. Because he's crucified, risen, and ascended into heaven where he currently sits at the right hand of the Father. And as Peter says, where angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. That really is what he's saying. Now, in verses 19, uh, 18, 19, and 20, there's some, some, some odd things, some difficult things for us to understand, and we'll take a look at them. But let's not miss the main point, point. and the main point is that Jesus is king, that Jesus is conqueror, that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, has defeated all evil, so therefore, what can evil now do to the one who believes? And if Jesus is one who conquers through suffering then he will share his victory with those who suffer for him. Now, let's say this right up front as we look at this passage. It's a difficult little passage. And let me say this as well. I know there's a variety of different interpretations. I've looked at three of them this past week, and I'm only going to talk about the one that makes the most sense to me. So quite frankly, you may disagree with me, and that's okay. But if a theologian with the brilliance of Martin Luther can say this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament, I still do not know for sure what the apostle means, then I think it's okay for us to, with humility, take our best stab at it, throw our hands up in the air and say, Jesus is king. (laughs) With all that said, let's look at these verses. In verses 18 and 19, let me read them to you again. Uh, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, comma, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, comma. Let's just push pause for right there. In these two verses, 18 and 19, Peter is coming back to Jesus' acts of redemption. He's coming back to the crucifixion. He's coming back to the resurrection, and Peter is including the ascension with them. For Christ suffered. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. But but, uh, Christ was made alive in the Spirit. He was physically raised to a new type of life, a new type of being, what St. Paul calls a heavenly body. Through Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, those who believe in him are forgiven their sins by grace through faith. They are brought close to God. As Peter says, they are made truly alive with a secure promise of everlasting life through the resurrection. That's the gospel. But then Peter goes on to include the ascension when he says in which he went. In the resurrected life, he went and proclaimed. And this is where some of our misunderstanding or some of our difficult understanding begins. The question automatically arises, where did Jesus go and to whom did Jesus proclaim his victory? Let me just say, for simplicity's sake, from from what I can understand What makes best sense to me is that Peter is talking here about the ascension. The ascension being that event recorded in Acts chapter 1, recorded in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus is physically and bodily lifted up into heaven. And the disciples are left there gaping at the sky, and an angel comes down and says, What are you you doing? He's gone. He went up to heaven, and the same way that he left, he will return. In that ascension, that is, I think, a proclamation that Jesus has conquered. I say that because of the connection between the ascension of Jesus rising to sit at the right hand of the Father and what Daniel sees in his vision of Daniel chapter 7, in which one, like a son of man, rises and sits at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. And there, the Son of Man receives an eternal dominion, all authority, and all power. And so when we ask the question as if Jesus descended into hell to uh, harrow Hades, as it's put, I'm not sure that's, that's quite accurate. It seems as though this is his going, was his ascending, and in that event proclaiming his victory. Proclaiming his victory over all evil, proclaiming his victory over all death, proclaiming his victory over everything that God has not given his stamp of approval to. The ascension, by the way, with the seating of Jesus at the right hand of the Father, is the final point of God the Father saying, I approve of what Jesus has done. I accept his crucifixion. I have raised him to new life. That which he has to give, I approve of. He is now here in authority. You want to know why a sojourn or an exile can have no fear? It's because of where Jesus sits. He sits at the right hand of the Father. It seems as though here in 1 Peter, uh, that Peter, the author, is use, using a Jewish tradition, a Jewish tradition that arose after the completion of the Old Testament and before the life of Jesus. He's using it, uh, what we have as the pseudepigraphal writing, 1st Enoch, he's using it as an illustration of Jesus' conquest over evil. In Genesis chapter 5, 21 through 24, we're introduced to a man named Enoch. Enoch was one who walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, that's a really limited amount of information that we get about this character named Enoch, who was apparently so incredibly godly that he walked with God, and then God just sort of took him. In Jewish tradition that grew up around Enoch, because of the sparse biblical narrative, Enoch was taken up from earth and was, went to dwell with these beings who were called the watchers and holy ones. The watchers were demonic spirits who left heaven and, uh, because of the beauty of human women, lusted after them and brought evil to the pre-Noaic flood world. In First Enoch, these watchers and the evil for which they're re- uh, responsible have corrupted the earth, will continue to corrupt the earth until God's plans for history are accomplished. The watchers ask Enoch, hey, go ask God if we can get out of jail. Basically what happens, Enoch returns and says, God, God said no. You have to remain imprisoned, right? The word is imprisoned. You have to remain imprisoned for all eternity, and you will see the destruction of your sons because of their evil. That's what Enoch tells the watchers. Noah comes into all of this because God's judgment in the flood was a foreshadowing of his final judgment, and Noah was saved because of his faith. Now, how does this help us understand Peter's letter? I don't know. Maybe I confused us all the more. But in using a tradition that these earliest believers may have known, Peter is proclaiming Christ's complete victory over evil. Even the primordial evil of the earliest days of creation, nothing is beyond the power and the conquest of Jesus. Go back as far as you can in time, Peter's essentially saying, and that evil has been conquered. Go forward as far as you can until Jesus returns, and that, that evil has been conquered. How much more so than the evil of your own present day? Why can you have no fear? Because Jesus is here. Jesus Christ, because of his crucifixion and his resurrection, completely and totally conquers all evil ever. And Jesus, in his ascension into heaven, proclaims that victory to even fallen angels and demonic spirits. By the way, that's just a foretaste, or there's just a foretaste of of Jesus' conquest in the gospel accounts. What did Jesus do when he encountered demons? Well, he kicked them to hell. He didn't leave them where they were. He exhibited his power and his mastery, and he cast them out. Christ's proclamation, then, is is that God's great conclusion, foreshadowed by the flood, is now accomplished. As Jesus ascended into heaven, the crucified and risen one, he takes his seat at the right hand of God, where all things, all things, all things are subjected to him. Angels, authorities, powers, ancient evil beings, and present evil persecutors. With the ascension comes the future return of Jesus as he promises to return as he went, where he will consummate his kingdom, totally and fully destroy the evil which which he has conquered, and set all things right. It's Jesus who is the conquering king over all evil Over evil that is both spiritual and physical. And this is precisely why it is Jesus who is to be feared. And not those who may insult, revile, or persecute sojourners and exiles because of their righteousness. It is this Jesus through whom one is saved. It is because of this Jesus that one can be baptized. Noah and his family were delivered through water, so now the waters of the sacrament of baptism are a part of who a believer in Jesus is. Peter's reference here in his letter is to remind his audience then and now of the reality of baptism. In the sacrament, the baptism is first a pledge from God, to those who receive the sacrament that he will indeed save and wash clean by his grace through faith. And the sacrament is secondly a pledge from the believer or in the case of an infant being baptized the believing parents that the person baptized will be loyal to God who saves and will indeed continue in faith, trust and obedience We have to remember what Peter is doing in this passage. He is encouraging those who face persecution to hold fast to Jesus, to remember their baptismal vows, and to remember that Jesus alone is the one to be feared. Not anything a man can do. He's encouraging them by reminding them that Jesus has conquered all evil, and they have responded with faith and have been baptized, and that in baptism, God promises and pledges to deliver them. And that is why Peter's first audience can and do respond to unjust suffering without fear. And that is why Peter's audience now can respond to unjust suffering without fear, because Jesus has conquered, because Jesus is king, because Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. And any fear that we exhibit, any fear we may endure, comes because we don't trust him enough. Because we do not set him apart as holy. We either, in our fear, reveal that we don't really believe Jesus has completely conquered, that that Jesus doesn't really have everything in hand, or we don't believe that Jesus is working for our good. The only way to have fear is to set Jesus, the one who is conquered, as center of our being, center of our lives. That's the only way we can live without fear and that's the only way we can respond well to questions about our hope. Our hope, by the way, Peter calls a living hope. A living hope, not because it's placed in some dead prophet, but a living hope because it is placed in the crucified, risen, and ascended one who will return. A living hope because it is confident expectation in the one who went that he will return and set all things right. And when you live differently in a living hope, people will get ticked off and they'll ask you questions. (laughs) Don't be intimidated, Peter writes, by those who persecute you for doing good. Rather, set Jesus apart and always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. You run into people all the time who say, I just don't know how to defend my faith. I just don't know how to evangelize. I just don't. It's just Jesus. Why do you have a living hope? Jesus. Why are you confident in the face of persecution? Jesus. Why is it that you do this, Jesus? Why is it you don't do this, Jesus? You see where I'm going with this? (laughs) Have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Have no fear. fear only Jesus. Always be prepared to explain why it is that you have a hope that is alive and not some sort of Pollyannish, wishful thinking. Do it well. Do it with gentle and respectful words. Don't fear them. Fear God and talk about Jesus. Don't worry about how it's all going to work out. Jesus has already conquered. Trust that he will share his victory over evil with those who believe. Have no fear. Be blessed and cling to Jesus. Answer well. Hold fast. Even when it hurts, hold fast. Have no fear because of Jesus, the one who's conquered all evil. He is the only reason why a believer can stand in the face of persecution and have no fear. Jesus is the only reason why we have an explanation for the living hope that we have in Jesus said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.